Thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode of Market Foolery. For $50 off any mattress, go to casper.com slash fool and enter the promo code fool. It's Wednesday, June 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm good. I was saying just before we started, we're we're having a very social video kind of week here on Market Fuller. Yesterday we did a Facebook Live. It's a social world. It is. You know? And I mean, today this is being video streamed on the Twitter. Yeah, sure. Why not? Via Periscope. Hey, I mean, you know, we got people who follow us on Twitter. We do. And we sure. we love the listeners. We, we love do. all of our listeners. And a question we get from time to time is well, do you do much editing on the podcast? How long does it take? And generally, we like to think of this as one-take productions. We want to make this as easy for our producer, Dan Boyd, as possible, so we try to make sure that there's no editing involved. But the way to see for yourself whether or not there's any <laughs> editing involved is you can come by Fool HQ, as anyone is welcome to do, to catch a taping, or you can uh, you can be on Twitter while we're doing this. Well, and we get that question a lot, right? I think that's the the... Good part about having worked together for so long is you know you you sort of get into a groove and know how uh, to to respond to each other's sort of questions and answers and jokes and whatnot. You can sort of make these things happen without having to do too much cutting up. Exactly. So we're going to go heavy on beverages today. Uh, we're going to talk about the beer industry. We're going to talk about the soda industry. We got to start though with uh, Amberella, which is one of the biggest losers on the Nasdaq today. This is the chipmaker key supplier to GoPro, and Amberella's their first quarter results looked okay, but their guidance for the current quarter is what sent Wall Street headed for the exits. Yeah, and I think you you pretty much just said it in a nutshell right there: key supplier to GoPro, and so that should probably have you running in the other direction. On its own, not key supplier to Apple. <laughs> yeah, well, and and I think what we saw with with a company like Invincense is that if you are a supplier to Apple, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be all sunshine and lollipops either. Uh, but with Amberella, I mean, I think we talk a lot about trying to learn from mistakes, learn from businesses past, and and see if if maybe why history doesn't you know it may not repeat itself it certainly rhymes in some cases and so i think we may be seeing that same sort of thing playing out here with amberella as we saw with invincence and i th- i think that you know we we owned amberella for a time in million dollar portfolio and it was an interesting company we thought there was a lot of uh, potential there because of this move towards video uh, because of the fact that they were such a key supplier to gopro and that that story quickly changed once we saw GoPro sort of falling off the cliff, and and Amberella really sort of a one-two punch there. Of not only are are they getting hit on that supply side as a provider of chips to GoPro, but you know the part the problem with this technology, and they they have these these systems on a chip sort of uh, hardware that they're selling. They're constantly having to figure out a way to innovate and get better. There's always someone out there in this space that comes up with some sort of new technology that's a little bit better, it's a little bit faster, it produces a better picture, whatever it may be. And so we sold in MDP because we saw sort of this picture where sales growth was starting to slow down. And typically with a company like this, when sales growth starts to slow down, they're going to have to start conceding a little bit on pricing in order to get that product out there. And when you're conceding on your pricing in any capacity and, uh, the company that you're supplying a lot of your product to is really seeing a major slowdown as well. Those margins start getting squeezed pretty hard too, and that's I think what what has the market really down today on the stock. 
And I think the biggest problem is that it's the forward-looking picture. While the the quarter itself wasn't all that bad, I think they actually beat expectations on, on both fronts. It's the picture going forward. The market started to look at this and say, "Whoa." Maybe this is something where the the path to to success isn't quite as clear um, or or as as bright as perhaps we once thought. I, I really can't help but think this is going to be sort of another Invincent story. I don't know that it's a stock that I'd put up there as one I'd want to buy um, because it's just such a tough space. I mean, scale is really the biggest advantage in this business, and and Amberella, Invincent, those are not companies that have that scale when you compare them to companies like. Intel or Qualcomm. So you don't look at. We get this question a lot about entry point. What you're going to pay for a stock, and and a lot of times the the question comes in the form of, I really like company X. The stock keeps going up. Should I buy now or should I wait for a pullback so I can get a better entry point? You don't look at Amberella falling ten percent today and saying, oh well. Un- no, unless it's just a really small. I think that if you want to look at it from that perspective, you need to be able to identify the catalyst that's going to take this thing in the other direction. And the problem is that's not so easy to recognize, especially when it comes to technology like this, because it's really difficult to kind of see what new technology is coming down the pike. I mean, that's not really what we specialize in, and and not a lot of people are really uh, so capable to see around corners, so to speak. So I, I tend to look at something like this, and I think, you know what? I mean, it's it's not even like it's that cheap of a stock still. When you look at the fact that sales are slowing down, that margins are getting squeezed a little bit, this is kind of one of those ones where you think maybe there's a value trap here. Where, yeah, it's nice to buy on dips, but make sure when you buy on that dip that there's a catalyst that gets this thing going back in the other direction. I just don't know that we can identify that catalyst with Amberella today. Dave and Buster's is hitting a new high after first quarter profits came in higher than expected. They're same store sales were a little over two percent. That was lower than I think analysts were looking for. But I don't know. I look. I get that. But I look at this environment. I look at the restaurant space, and I think the stronger headline is Dave and Buster's had positive comps. <laughs> yes, I mean that's you can't argue that, right? It was what two point two percent comps in the face of a restaurant industry right now that is having a difficult time. Figuring out what direction it needs to head. Um, again, we go back to what we we're talking about with with Invincenza and Amberella. I think that on the surface, Dave and Buster's had a nice quarter here. Most of that growth on the top line came from opening new stores, though. Even even though they had positive comps, I mean, really, most of that growth came from new stores. When we look at Dave and Buster's today, that has about a hundred stores. And they see their opportunity in, in um, North America, the U.S. and Canada, as about 200 stores. So they're basically halfway there. Uh, we're watching something kind of play out here already with Buffalo Wild Wings. I mean, Sally Smith leaving, notwithstanding. I mean, before that news came out, we knew that Buffalo Wild Wings was starting to hit a little bit of a ceiling there as far as growth goes. And so identifying what is it that separated Buffalo Wild Wings for so long? And it wasn't the food. It was the experience, right? I mean, it was the fact that you could go into one of those restaurants, and there were going to be 60 TVs in there showing you virtually every game you wanted to see. I would make the argument, and I've never been to Dave & Buster's, but I don't think that what separates them is the food. I think it's pretty replicable. What separates is the experience. And that's why we see 55% or so of their revenue comes from the amusement side of that business. So, it's an experience-based story. And and I think that what you have to look at here is based on the market opportunity, how many stores they have to open, 
it's it's maybe a hundred more. Perhaps that's a little bit of an overestimation too. I think a lot of times these companies sort of overestimate the, the actual market opportunity. They're going to open probably ten to twelve stores a year, so it's going to take them probably eight to ten years to get there. Um, if if that if that prediction is actually uh, correct. Again, when you look at what separates them, just being the experience, and given all of the dollars that are out there competing for our attention today in the entertainment space, I don't know that I look at Dave and Buster's as necessarily the most attractive opportunity to go for. Like, I, I appreciate that they've done well to this point, but again, with investing, we're looking forward, and you have to be thinking sort of five years down the line. What does this company look like? Well, five years down the line, they probably have 150 stores, maybe less, maybe a little bit more. Um, but I, I don't know that necessarily at that point in time the market's going to be looking at this and saying, "Yeah, this is just a revolutionary company that is changing the face." I mean, restaurants are a very, very difficult business, especially uh, to really gain a, a tremendously loyal following. Um, so, neat experience. I think that they're doing a lot of good things to, to get the business where it is today. I, you know what? I look at what they're doing right now in repurchasing shares, and I have to push back on that a little bit. I hate to see a company this young in its public life buying back as much stock as they're buying back. I was surprised by that too. And it's not like they're buying a ton of stock, yeah. but just the fact that they're buying any. And as you said, as as young a company as it is, I, I saw that in the release, and I was like, wait, why are they? <laughs> Why are they spending one dollar repurchasing stock? It's and I don't I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes these young management teams think that it creates sort of a shareholder friendly headline. I mean, people generally will look at that and their first take will be like, "Oh, well, they're buying back shares. It must be a compelling value." That's you know, shareholder friendly management team there. We've seen it. There is all sorts of proof out there that, for the for the most part, management teams tend to get share buybacks wrong. And, and I mean, it's very clear these guys are buying back shares with the stock at an all time high. They have net debt on the balance sheet, and they still have a lot of growth that they need to uh, you know to sort of fund. I, I just don't think that's a good decision. I don't like seeing it. And, and so to me, that's sort of one of those things where that's just almost the nail on the coffin for me. I feel like if I'm going to invest in a restaurant, this isn't going to be the first one I touch. Well, and as we often say. If you're buying back stock, sometimes that's an indication that you don't have a better idea of what to do with that money. And when you look at the debt, and when you look at the opportunity in terms of opening stores, and I'm not even suggesting that Dave and Buster should be looking to ramp up in a significant way the speed with which they are opening new locations, but you don't just sock that away. Yeah. Just put that money, even if you just put it towards paying off a little bit of that debt. I now on the flip side. Uh, give them credit for their margins because they, mm-hmm. they they grew their margins, and yeah, fifty five percent is coming from the amusement side. They also sell alcohol, and that's always high margin. Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, again, I think they are doing a lot. Unless of you're things. doing it wrong. Well, <laughs> if you're selling alcohol and you're not doing it in a high margin way, you're doing it wrong. They are doing a lot of things right, and they have a good loyalty program that I think brings back. Um, Customers again, though I think when you look, it's a business that requires a lot of capital because they've got to, they've got to stock those restaurants with all sorts of games and uh, you know entertainment devices and whatnot. So they're not cheap to open, and like you said, I feel like at this point in the game, there's got to be something more you can do with that money than just buying back stock at all time highs. I mean, and then you you look at the balance sheet and you actually look at the share account outstanding, and it's going up, not down. So, I mean, all things considered, I mean, if we look at a comparable there in in Chipotle, when we're talking about buying back shares, I mean, yeah, we put Chipotle through the ringer here over the last 18 months, and they deserved it. I mean, they screwed up big time, and it took them a little while to actually really 
come to grips with it and communicate it well. Uh, but all throughout that, they did a really good job of buying back that stock at seriously depressed levels. And so, in hindsight, when we look at what Chipotle did in buying back a lot of those shares, it was assuming this this recovery continues. Um, and there are no more health scares. That that would be considered a very shrewd use of capital. Also, when you consider they have a stacked with cash balance sheet with no real debt to speak of, and so those are the two ends of the spectrum. There, Chipotle is certainly a very uh, much more mature company, uh, whereas whereas Dave and Buster's is not. I just yeah, like you said, I think there's probably a better use for that capital. BMO Capital put out a note this morning downgrading both Pepsi and Coca Cola. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this because what struck me was how very clear the analysts at BMO Capital were about differentiating between the two businesses, even though both were downgraded slightly. They went out of their way to say, essentially, we think Pepsi can grow earnings and we don't think Coca Cola can. We look at Coca Cola as essentially a safety stock, it is a stock where you can park your money. And you're going to do better than bonds, and you might get a little appreciation, but you're also mainly you're going to get a dividend. But we know we don't view it the same as Pepsi. And I, on the one hand, I agree with that, and somehow I'm still, I'm still a little surprised at that, only because for so long we have looked at these two businesses together in tandem. That at various points in their history, one has outperformed the other. But this is the first time I can think of where there's like this real divergence. Like, yeah, no, it's it's basically the appreciation, stock appreciation run is over for Coca-Cola. I, I mean, there's an argument to be made there. I mean, I, I don't look. They're, at, they're making it well, and, and <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I tend to agree with that. I mean, I, I for a long time, and I think perhaps it was. It was uh, my Georgia roots had me favoring Coca-Cola just just because I mean for so long it's been such a no-brainer and such a big winner. Um, but to to your point there, I do think that Coca-Cola has become sort of like the IBM type stock where anybody can go buy it. You're not going to sit there and thumb your nose at it. You're going to be like, oh, you bought Coca-Cola. Yeah, that's just a great American brand, tremendous distribution, global presence. Yeah, you probably do just fine. You know, it's not going to be some terribly appreciative stock, but I mean, it's going to be one where you get a dividend. Um, I think that Pepsi, on the other hand, certainly has more opportunity, particularly when you consider the diversity of the business on the food side, like the salty snacks and then the uh, what Quaker I think is a part of it. Is that right? Yeah. And um, all part of Frito Lay. So I think yeah, the Frito Lay side of the business really offers them a lot of of additional sort of um, incremental revenue opportunity that maybe Coca Cola doesn't see today. Now I will say the one catalyst that could be there for Coca Cola down the line is this Honest Tea brand that they own. And Honest Tea just started out as just tea. Uh, they are building that business out. It is becoming more and more an important driver of the business as time goes on, and they are going to be rolling out more and more in the way of food. Um, and that that could certainly be a nice little catalyst. Now, Coca-Cola is a very big business, and it's not going to be something that just impacts the bottom line overnight. But I, I think if you gave me the choice between the two, to- the two stocks today, I, w- I would go with Pepsi, because I do think there is a bit more upside opportunity in the stock while still reeling in um, a nice dividend. And hey, I mean, I love the salty snacks, Chris. <laughs> I'm just a salty snacks kind of guy. Well, and and they didn't go out of their way to say this, but I, I part of my takeaway from from reading through this was 
okay, maybe Coca-Cola no longer has a place in your stock portfolio, but you can make a pretty good case that it can replace your bonds. Oh yeah. That yeah, if you, yeah. that if you have any sort of bonds that you're holding on to, you're Coca-Cola is not going away, and it's going to be safe, and you are going to get that dividend, and you're going to get a better return than certainly with a ten-year Treasury. Yeah, and I don't want listeners or viewers to to hear us talking about this and think, well, now I got to sell my Coca-Cola or I got to sell my Pepsi. I mean, these were downgrades from one firm from like market outperform to market perform. These were essentially valuation-based downgrades, and so. Let's remember that, right? right? Let's keep it all in in perspective. I think um, they're based more on the shorter term price targets as opposed to the longer term fundamentals of the business. These are still very good businesses with tremendous brands, tremendous distribution networks, and and by far and away, a tremendous global footprint on both sides. Uh, they're good holdings, but yeah, I mean they're they're not going to be necessarily the same type of growth story that perhaps they were a decade ago. Uh, but they can still be very good sort of bedrock holdings if if you have them. All right. Before we dip into the full mailbag, got to say thanks to Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper understands the importance of actually trying out a mattress that you're going to spend a third of your life on, and that's why they offer free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period, so you don't have to lie down in the showroom, which is just terrible. <laughs> have you ever done that? I, yeah. Have yeah. you? Yeah. The, like. I don't think I have. Uh, I'm gonna say maybe like five years ago we got a we got a new mattress and just you know went to a couple of places, and I I vividly remember lying there with my eyes closed and thinking this is stupid, this is just stupid. We should just you know we should just leave right now. Uh, Casper's mattresses are made in the USA and they offer free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. So they make it really, really easy for you. By the way, we finished taping uh, Monday's episode. We had guests visiting. Yes. And afterwards, was chatting with them, and they said, "Oh, you know, we we bought a Casper mattress. Um, we you know we we used the uh, we used the full promo code, and we bought a nice. Casper. Nice. Like, That's we love that." Um, Agreement with Casper extended. There you go. (laughs) Uh, They bought it, and you can too. You can save an additional $50 toward a mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash fool and entering the promo code fool. That's casper.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com from Sal Maragliata in the 908. I think that's Jersey. Nine. The last two years have not been kind to Boston Beer shareholders, as we have seen the stock drop below $150 a share. I've been waiting slash hoping for a big move out of Boston Beer, and I've seen nothing. They've sat on the sidelines as big brewers gobble up small craft brewers. Their strategy of wait until the small guys die won't pan out if there's a chance those guys are sent life preservers with motors so they can expand and distribute through the big guys. The successful ones are being purchased for amazing sums of money. What are your thoughts? I used to trust management's direction, but I am becoming increasingly concerned for a company with virtually no debt. I would love to see them invest in small craft brewers, whether through buying out or ownership stakes." It's a great question, and particularly in the wake of what we were talking about with how how do companies use money? Yeah, Because we love to look at businesses but as we say all the time, people are running these businesses, and one of the decisions those people make running the businesses is how do they allocate capital. And yes. in the case of Boston Beer, we've talked about this before. Some have gone out and said, "Hey, Ballast Point, 
yeah, we'll we'll spend a billion dollars on that. <laughs> and so you can applaud Boston Beer for not taking you know, taking out a huge checkbook and doing that. But to Sal's point, they've got the money. Yeah, they so, do. So I guess my first question is: He's starting to waver on management. Where are you on Boston Beer's management right now in terms of? What they've, what you've seen over the last couple of years. Well, I mean, Sal is a shareholder of Boston Beer. Myself, I feel your pain, and I would say to you that I. So I think this has been a very frustrating investment from the perspective of it's becoming more and more apparent that founder Jim Cook is more inclined to just batten down the hatches and ride this storm out. Uh, versus trying to get it there and, and actively do something to make something happen. I think we've been hit with this tremendous um, craft beer revolution, so to speak. And what it's done is it's really taken it's taken craft beer to the local level, which has been great if you're a beer fan because there are all sorts of local flavors out there, and people really enjoy being able to support their own local breweries. And I think there's a future where Boston beer exists. I just I, you know, it's it's hard for me to see the case for buying shares today because I think it's going to take a while for anything really to happen. I mean, Jim Cook's thrown some clues out there at least that he's he's going to kind of wait this thing out. He talked about um, he talked about an example with Corona at a point in time where over the past eight years, I mean, Corona's depletions had been had been down and they only got back to. Their 2006 or seven levels here just recently, so they more or less just kept on investing in the brand and sort of waiting it out, and, and volumes came back eventually. But that took a lot of time, and obviously, Corona is not just one brand; it's part of Constellation, which owns a lot of brands, including Ballast Point. Which, I mean, let's be clear: buying Ballast Point for a billion dollars was absolutely un- unreasonable. Now, I mean, if you're a Ballast Point owner, well, I mean, you got to take that deal. <laughs> I mean, you just got to take that deal. You know, craft roots be damned. I mean, that's a billion dollars, man. You can't turn that down. Um, so I think you know, from from Cook's perspective, he is very much, um, he is very much a craft beer guy. I don't think he wants to become part of something bigger. And there's been a lot of good literature out there recently about craft beer and about how the big brewers are more or less their strategy at this point. We're talking about Anheuser Busch and Bev and Miller Coors. Companies like that, their strategy is basically to marginalize the craft beer market. Buy these little craft beer labels, take them to market, cut the prices, and more or less just sort of sort of whittle down that that sort of perception between sort of your Budweisers and then your your craft beers of the world. And so I think that's really put Boston beer in a tough, tough spot. And and I don't know that there is really an easy solution out. I think that what I'd love to see them do is invest in some new craft brands and sort of become uh, what I liken to the Buffett of craft beer. I think there's an interesting opportunity for Cook, for Cook to do that. Um, but by the same token, he's not going to do that in the face of these really robust valuations today. And they've said as much on the call. So they're not going to go out there and make acquisitions just for acquisition's sake. And he says between the two choices here of making acquisitions of high priced companies or just buying back their own stock at depressed levels, they're going to buy back their own stock. I admire that. At least they're doing the right thing in saying, hey, we feel like our stock represents a compelling value. We're going to buy more of that stock back, try to try to return more value to shareholders that way, and sort of play the waiting game. 
as as a shareholder, I'm going to keep my shares because I don't need to sell them, and and I think there is value there in the brand and the distribution, the facilities they have. But I think it's going to be a much longer story uh, to play out than perhaps we anticipated, even like two or three years ago. Sal mentioned the price of Boston Beer stock. Just to put it in percentage terms, over the last two years, the S and P 500 up about 16 percent, and during that same time period. Boston beer shares down forty five percent, so up sixty percent, trailing the market there. That's yeah, and they're looking for a new CEO too. Martin Roper's getting ready to step down. Um, they brought a new chief marketing officer in there, and they're trying to sort of do some rebranding. And I think if you've noticed the new labeling on the on the bottles, and um, I think they're pursuing just some more different types of flavors. They really sort of dropped the ball this spring with their new seasonal offering, and so hopefully we'll see. Uh, a little bit of a better performance this summer with their summer ale because that always is a traditionally a strong performer. But it just, I mean, a lot of challenges out there for these guys right now, and it's just, it's not going to be an easy solution. But I think in order for them to really grow in a meaningful way, they're going to have to add new craft brands to that portfolio at some point or another. It's just anyone's guess as to when that is. But I think we're going to really have to wait at least to see some of these valuations come back to earth. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.